basically what had happened was Larry had represented an older man who was very wealthy and he was an old miserly kind of guy who took pride in saving every penny that he ever made. And he called Larry into, uh, into the hospital where he was dying and uh, also at the same time called Larry in as his attorney, called his doctor in and called his minister in. And he said, you know, my whole life I've been told that you can't take it with you. And just to kind of spite all those people who told me that, I've got one last request. Uh, as, as I pass on and at the funeral, I'm going to ask the three of you, since you've been my lifelong companions, you've been involved in my life in different areas, but I, I would like you to do me a favor. He said, I've got three bags here for each of you. One for the doctor, one for the attorney, one for the minister. And in those bags is $30,000 in cash. And at my funeral, just kind of despite everyone who said you can't take it with you, I want you to come and uh, as they lower my casket into the ground, I want each of you to walk over and throw that bag in that I give you. And so they take the three bags with them. They go home, and about two weeks later, this old gentleman passes away, and they're at the funeral. And they walk over, each of them individually, per his request, and they toss in the bag. So later on, they're at the reception, and they're sitting around, and they're talking, uh, just reminiscing about the life of this man. And uh, the minister breaks first. He says, you know, I really feel guilty about this. He goes, we've had this building program going to church and it's been really tough financially, times are bad and it seemed like such a waste to throw $30,000 into the ground. It's such a, you know, it's ridiculous. You can't take it with you, you know, you can't take it with you. So I took 10000 out of the bag and left twenty in and threw 20000 into the ground. And the doctor with a sigh of relief goes across his face. He goes, man, I'm so glad you brought it up because even I was feeling a little guilty about this. We're building a children's wing at the hospital, and we needed 20,000, and I took 20, and I left 10, and I, and I just threw 10 in. And Larry, being the man of integrity that he is, and an attorney, says, I'm appalled that you guys, here you are, pillars of our society, you're a minister, a doctor, I mean, people look up to you, and you would do something like that, and I knew that the temptation would be there to take the money, so I took all 30,000, I deposited it in my checking account, and I wrote a personal check for the whole amount, and I threw it in that ground. And when you got when you got men of integrity out there like that, I just I'm I forgive me for all the things that I've said about your profession. Over the past few weeks, we've uh, been examining the problem of temptation and uh, also the problem for those in the back of trying to read the overhead. Um, so, I, I don't we we haven't resolved that this week, but we'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. But in the meantime, I'll make sure that I clarify everything that's up here. But we've been looking at the problem of temptation specifically as it addresses sexual behavior in our society and as it addresses our individual sexual behavior and the temptation that falls in that area. And as difficult and as uncomfortable as all of this has been to many of us, um, there have been some things that are comforting. And uh, one of the things, that I will share just a few of them with you, but one of the things that's very comforting to me, according to the Bible, there's no temptation that has overtaken any of us that's not common to all of humanity. And when I consider what God has to say about the problem of temptation, I can take comfort in knowing that there's nothing that I struggle with as an individual that isn't true of all of humanity. Now, the desires at times, the intensity and the degree from, by which each of us are tempted is going to vary, and I'll explain that to you in a minute. But the reality of it is, if anybody sits out there with an attitude that, you know what, I'm struggling with something that nobody else in the world has ever struggled with. You can take comfort knowing that that is not a true statement. That there isn't anything that we will struggle with as individuals that is not being struggled with and over by someone else 
in the human race. God says that there is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to all of mankind. And that's comforting to me. So don't sit there with an attitude no one will understand. Because let me tell you something, God understands and others have gone through it and they understand as well. And the purpose of all of this is to help encourage one another to do that which is right. So there's a lot of comfort in that. The second thing that we've got to understand, if you've got your Bibles as a kind of a backdrop to what I want to talk about today, turn, turn with me in the book of uh, James at the end of the book, at the end of your Bible. James chapter 1 deals with the whole subject of temptation. And this is another thing that has been an encouragement to me. James 1, verses 13 through 16, gives us some interesting insight that complements what we've been discussing on the problem of temptation. James 1, 13 through 16. According to this passage, we must understand that temptation is an enticement or a bait um, that is thrown into our life to cause us to act in a manner that's not pleasing before God. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be, tempt for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Then he says this, don't be deceived by this, my brethren. It's interesting as you see this in verse 13, he says, hey, no, no one say when he is tempted. The reality of that statement is very simple. We are going to be tempted. We are all going to be tempted in different areas of our life, at different times in our life, different degrees of our life, different intensities, different, as we say, different seasons of our life. There are things that you will go through as you grow older that you've never experienced at any time in your life. And it's going to be different. And yet God recognizes it, says, let no one say when he is tempted, and you will be tempted, that he is tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. And so the reality of this is when we do that which is wrong before God, it's not God answering your prayers. And there's many people who mistakenly believe that. Oh, God wants me happy, so this is what he's allowed to happen in my life. No, not at all. In fact, that is absolutely contrary to what the Bible teaches. God does not answer prayer by allowing you to sin in your life. That is not God that does that. And so he goes on and he says, Hey, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. There's that word for bait. It's a bait or attraction. And the interesting thing is you can't catch, you know, you can't catch the same fish with the same bait. All fish don't are not attracted by the same bait. And so the reality of all of that is very simple. Each one of us are different. Each one of us, are, we, we, uh, we tick in a different way. And so there's different enticement or bait that'll work for you that won't work for me. There's bait that'll work on me that you won't even have a desire to look at. And so we need to understand that each of us are different and there's degrees by with which we differ. And the bait that is used to entice us or do that which wrong is going to be different and it's gonna be on an individual basis. And so as you consider that, he says, hey, when he is carried away and enticed by his own, it's a personal thing, by his own lust. And that really lays a backdrop for what we're talking about in the area of sexual behavior because each one of us are turned on by different things and in different ways, and yet there's a pattern that we can look at uh, that the Bible outlined for us, and we saw that. There are certain th things, even though we are tempted by different things or enticed by different behavior, there are certain things that are true throughout. And that is the, the uh, process or the characteristics that we saw of seduction. There's a process that occurs that we need to recognize that we're all vulnerable to. And so while the degrees of difficulty, so to speak, uh, change with each individual, there's still a process that we need to understand is correct. And that is the characteristics that we saw of seduction were verbal compliments 
complimenting people not for the sake of encouraging them, but for the purpose of leading them into sexual behavior that's not pleasing before God. It continues to grow in intensity when we see sensual conversations or conversations that are involved with, uh, you know, of a sexual orientation. It starts out with a simple compliment, but the motive behind that compliment is to entice someone to throw the bait out to see if they'll nibble on it, to see if you can continue on in the direction by which you're trying to pursue. And once they start to take that bait and they nibble on that, then all of a sudden you become more bold in your conversations and your statement, and it becomes very sensually oriented. God also says that the characteristic of seduction is that of weak commitments. A person who is not committed to God, nor the things of God, nor the truth of the word of God, uh, can tend to fall in an area because there is no conviction there. And so we need to understand that not only the conviction of doing what is right, but the conviction for those that are married of, of staying faithful within your marriage. There's weak commitments that are involved. Spiritual confusion, we saw that. Many times we see people who say, God brought this person into my life. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, but uh, let me tell you something. If that person has led you into a sin in your life or into a behavior that's wrong before God, don't blame God for that, nor give him the credit for it. You know, take responsibility yourself uh, as we go through the spiritual confusion. And then we also saw that, you know, immodest clothing, things that are used to try to entice men from a woman's standpoint, uh, physical contact that's not pleasing to God in the way that we uh, communicate um, encouragement to one another, the way we hug each other, the way we kiss each other, the way that we touch each other. Um, you know, there are things that we need to be aware of that lead to behavior that's right, not right before God. So we saw that, and we also saw the consequences of behavior that's wrong. We saw that it led to spiritual defeat for a Christian. It, it, it destroys our testimony before the world. Uh, there's emotional damage that's caused by those who have sexual activity outside of marriage. Uh, they carry the baggage with them throughout. Uh, family devastation, and we went through that in depth, a physical disease that goes along with it. And it's interesting, I talked to one gentleman who brought up an interesting point. Not only is physical disease a problem with sexual activity outside of marriage, but also um, sexual vitality seems to suffer as well. There is a loss of intimacy or feelings of intimacy uh, when a person has been promiscuous at some point in their background and they carry that into their new relationship and they just kind of, they're just dead to feelings. I mean, it's just flat. It's nothing. It's mechanical. It's physical. There's no intimacy. There's no romance. There's no, uh, there's no encouragement. There's no love. There's no warmth. There's no caressing. It's just, you know, it's nothing. And the reason for it is, is very simple. And I, and I believe that God is very clear that that is a consequence of having sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage, which God says that, that, he, that he established and that he blesses and protects. We need to recognize that. It's a very dangerous thing. You know, and it's so sad because our society, you know, bachelor parties, hey, sow your wild oats. Well, let me tell you something. Man, you go out and you're promiscuous and you, and you go through all that and that's the kind of lifestyle that you lead and then you get into marriage and, and you, you feel confined. Oh, just one person? Geez, this is pretty confining, isn't it? You know, and then it's like it's nothing. It's not special. There's no... Uh, dis there's no joy of discovery. There's no feelings of, of intimacy and warmth. And it's just, and it's a tragedy that's not meant to be. Congregational disapproval, we saw that. As Christians who claim to, to know the Lord and uh, we violate God's uh, laws as far as sexual behavior, um, we shouldn't be too excited about having people that continue to promote that and advocate that, and we need to deal with that. But we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. You know, as I've gone through this, one of the things that, that um, is always interesting to me is it's one thing to recognize why we do some of the things that we do, and I guess to some degree it's important to understand that, but what I found in my own life, there's not much hope there. 
All right, it's one thing to say, here's the patterns that lead to wrong sexual behavior. Okay, you know, we gotta be careful how we compliment each other, what we talk about, the things that we do. All right, we need to understand all that, and that's important. All right, great. Well, and, and we also under, need to understand the consequences uh, if we do that which is wrong. But, but what helps me is, how do I keep from doing the wrong thing? What do I do from this point on? What do I do if I've been guilty of the wrong thing? How do I, you know, how do I deal with it now in my life, and what do I look forward to in the future? And it really is a matter of hope. What do we look forward to instead of always dwelling on the past? Hey, we all got past, we all got problems, we all got things that have, have you know, led us to the point we're at today. You know what, and, and that's well and good, but let's not dwell on the past. In fact, God says, hey, let's forget what lies behind and let's press on to what lies ahead. You know, we need to deal with where we are today and where God is taking us in the future. You know, it's one thing to know why you lean toward drugs as an encouragement in your life or why you lean toward alcohol or why you tend to be a liar or a gossip or a thief and, you know, oh, it, you know, it's family history, whatever all that stuff is. And it's interesting and important, I guess, to some degree to recognize why that is, but that doesn't answer our problem. That doesn't change our behavior. That doesn't give us any hope. The real hope that we're going to find is looking ahead, and that's really the challenge, and it's a challenge that, uh, that I'm going to call a challenge to sanctification. And, uh, you know, again, we need to understand that same passage that I shared a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says that there's no temptation that's overtaken you or I, but it's not common to all of us. It says, but God is faithful in the middle of our temptations. God is faithful in the middle of it. And it says, but God is faithful, who will not allow us to be tempted beyond that which we're able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. God always gives us a way out of the dilemmas that we find ourselves in or the predicaments that we may have voluntarily chose to get into, but God is faithful in the midst of our unfaithfulness. While we are faithless, he is continually faithful and he continues to offer us support and encouragement and hope and how to get out of the mess that we find ourselves in. How does a person get out of the lifestyle of homosexuality? How does a person who's having an affair break it off and get out of what they've gotten themselves into? How does, how does, oh, in our society, how does consenting singles stop having sex with one another when they discover that what they're doing is wrong before God? How do you break these habits? And that's exactly what they become. They become a habit, they become a lifestyle, and the longer that you do it, the more acceptable it becomes and the more you rationalize it and justify it. And God provides hope in the midst of all of it. How's a person who's angry and, and, and frustrated and, and vents their anger uh, by abusing other people and raping people and molesting people, how do they get out of that lifestyle? That's really what we need to concentrate on. That's where the hope is. What do we do and how do we get out of it? And there's only one answer, and it's interesting because we need to take a, a good hard look at this because many of us are dealing with individuals who are struggling with behavior that the Bible says is wrong, and you know what we do? We deal with the behavior. You living together? Move out. Hey, great, great encouragement, great advice. Hey, you having an affair? Stop doing it. Great. You're homosexual? Knock it off. Stop doing that stuff. You raping people? Oh, that's not right. Stop that. I mean, yeah, the easiest thing to do is to tell somebody stop doing what they're doing, but the reality of it is they don't have the ability to stop doing it. And we need to stop dealing with the symptoms in our society and we need to start dealing with the root issue once again because we are a people who are prone to trying to change people through politics and programs and policies. And the Bible clearly teaches there's only one way that people are going to change and that's when they have a heart transplant. That's the only way is that the heart is the root of the issue and the heart needs to be changed and there's only one way that that happens. The Apostle Paul said it best in Romans 7. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, I'm stuck in this lifestyle of whatever it is, how can I get out of it? 
And he said, thanks be to our God through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. There's only one way that people will get out of sexual behavior that's wrong before God, and that is a challenge to sanctification, and that's very simply this. We need to get to the point where we share with one another the importance of a life-changing experience by coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the only thing that's going to change hearts. It's the only thing that changes lives. the only thing that changes behavior. It's the only thing that God says, hey, all things become new, man. If any man's in Christ, everything's new in his life. All things pass away. All things become new. The past is behind you. And the reality of what I'm trying to say is very simple because we are dealing in our society with the symptoms of a very real problem, and that's the heart, the condition of the heart. There's only one way. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? Saved. See, because with the, with the heart, man believes, and it results in righteousness. But with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. And it goes on and says this, whosoever believes in him will not be disappointed. See, the only, the only hope that we have for those of you who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the only hope that you have is by putting your faith and your trust that Jesus Christ is God, that he came to this earth in human flesh, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for your sins and the sins of all those who would believe, and that three days later he rose from the dead, proving that he was who he claimed to be, and that is the God of the universe. And the Bible clearly teaches it's not by any works that we do, it's not by moving out if you live with somebody, it's not by stop having sex if it's outside of marriage, it's not by giving up homosexuality, it's not by giving up your affair if you're committing adultery, it's none of that stuff that's going to make you right with God. See, we sin because we're sinners, we're not sinners because we sin. And it's a heart condition that needs to be addressed, and the foundation of everything that I'm saying is very simple. You need to get to a point in your life where you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive you for your sins, and to make you the new person that he claims it will make you. And that's the only way that everything I'm about to say will make any sense to you at all. Because without the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, the things of God make no sense at all. What God says is right and wrong makes no sense at all. The Bible makes no sense at all. There was a time in my life I'd pick up the Bible and read it. It was the dumbest thing I ever read. It made no sense at all. There was no understanding of what was in it. I didn't recognize what he was saying. I don't understand. If you're consenting adults, why you can't do what you want to do? If you're not hurting anybody else, what's it to you? Hey, it's each his own. Live and let live. All the stuff that you hear around you today, hey, those all made sense to me. But the reality of what the Bible teaches is that we need to turn our hearts and lives over to Jesus Christ. Many of us have it in our heads, but we've never surrendered our wills. Hey, come into my life, and you do whatever you want to do. I give up trying to live my life the way I'm living it. That's what you need. You need to do that first, because then it says that your body will become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Then the Spirit of God will live in your life. He'll convict you of things that are right and wrong. He'll teach you the truth of the Word of God. He'll give you understanding of what God has to say. You'll look at the consequences and say, hey, those are true. You know what's amazing? All the surveys that come out now on sexual behavior and all the problems with AIDS and disease and all the rest of it, you know what every survey says? The survey says. You know what the survey says? The survey says people's behavior isn't changing because of the consequences. People aren't changing what they're doing. Every survey and study that comes out saying with the fear and the, of AIDS and death and disease and tragedy and, and unwanted pregnancies and abortion and all the stuff that's going on in the heartache in society... People aren't changing their sexual behavior. They're still praying for a cure. And they'll be the same people that say, God answered our prayers. We can keep doing what we've been doing. 
But that's not the truth of the Bible. God's dealing with, hey, the root issue here is that we need a, a new heart. Now, for those of you who have come to know Christ, here's the reality of what we're challenged with. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, nothing that I'm about to share with you is going to make any sense at all. You need to just give it up and you need to ask Christ in your life. Now, for those of you who claim to know Christ as Savior and want to be right before God and obedient before God and want to do what the will of God is, hey, for you, I've got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, take a look at this. First Thessalonians chapter 4 deals with oh, an interesting problem. Apparently, in the, this particular day, when Paul writes this uh, letter to this church at Thessalonica, there was a problem in their society of people just doing what they wanted to do from a sexual standpoint. Can you believe that people actually live like that? I mean, they just did what they wanted to do. You know, you wanted to have sex with someone, you just did it. You know, because they were probably consenting adults and they weren't hurting anybody else. And so he wrote this particular letter addressing this issue. And gee, you know what? You almost think that maybe nothing's new under the sun, huh? Maybe people are really the same after all. And anyway, the encouragement that Paul writes to this church of new believers, people who have asked Jesus Christ in their life, have come to know him as Lord and Savior, he writes this letter of instruction or encouragement to them. Because that's really, the Bible's only written to believers. That's all. An unbeliever can't pick this up and make any sense out of it. The Bible is written to us who have come to know Christ as believers on how we're to live our life and the importance of sharing what I shared with you a moment ago about t telling people they need a heart transplant. It's really a hard thing that needs to take place. Anyway, he says, finally then, brethren, we, uh, brethren, which indicates Christians, hey, finally then, hey, uh, fellow Christians, we, re we request and exhort you in the, in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk, how we should live our life, and please God, just as you do, that you may excel still more. You know, hey, keep on keeping on is what he's saying. Just because you're doing what's right sexually today before God doesn't mean you're going to do it tomorrow. Every day is a new day. Every moment's a new challenge. Every temptation that's dropped in front of you is another one that you have to reject and refuse. Hey, don't feel good because, hey, well, I did this for 10 years and I've been going pretty good. What's one bad six-month stint? You know what I mean? Uh, it's not based on that. It's, hey, you excel still more. Every day is a day where we choose to be obedient to the things of God. For you know what, our com what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. The work of sanctification is something that God does himself. When a person asks Jesus Christ to come into his life, the Bible says that we become a child of God. We're no longer a child of the devil, but we become a child of God. He adopts us as sons, according to Romans 8. John chapter 1 says, for those who believe in his name, we become children of God. That sanctification or being set apart from the rest of those who are not children of God is a work that God does himself. But there's also a challenge to us, and that is that we must live as though we are set apart, that we are different, and that's what he's encouraging us to do. Now that you're over in this camp, there's a different way to live. You know, it's no different than a guy who plays on one football team who has traded or signs a contract with another team. He says, hey, you know what? That's the way you used to do it over there. That's the way that things were over there. That's the way the plays were over there. That's the way our defense was run over there. But now you're on, in this camp, and you're with this team, and you're with this program, and we do things differently here. So let's forget about all the old things, and let's just concentrate on the new things. God does the same thing with us. Same with those of you who change jobs. Hey, that's what you used to do at your old company, but we always used to do it this way. Well, you don't work there anymore. Well, my other boss used to do it this way, but he's not your boss anymore. 
You know, it's like, a, you know, it's a time to change. And same with the Christian life. Hey, that's the way I used to do it, so what? What you used to do is wrong. Now I'm going to teach you a new and better way to live your life, is what God says to those who accept Christ. So he goes on and says, hey, this is my will for you, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now this is fascinating to me, because usually the way this works is, single people who are having sex outside of marriage say, well, sexual immorality is adultery. Right? Oh, that's interesting. And those who are committing adultery say, well, sexual immorality must be singles having sex outside of marriage. And then homosexuals say, well, sexual immorality isn't homosexuality. It's people that are committing adultery. They're not monogamous. Or, you know, it must be those who are committing rape or incest. It's certainly not that. Well, let me just give you a clue. The word for immorality here in the Greek is the word porneia, from which we get our English word pornography. And all throughout Scripture, it's every one of those behaviors that I just mentioned. Homosexuality, adultery, incest, bestiality, um, rape, and singles that are having sex outside of marriage. And, also interesting, pornography. Or any material, explicit material, that would cause you to think about or doing things that are not good before God, or not right before God. Isn't that fascinating? So the word immorality covers all those things. He's saying, so my will for you is that you are set apart from the rest of the world who thinks all that's okay. And here's how he explains it. He says, each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor, not in lustful passion like those who are not believers, Gentiles who do not know God. He's speaking specifically of non-Christians who don't know God. Guess what? They're going to do all those things because it makes sense to them. But we're different. Because we've got the Spirit of God living within us who's telling us that's not right anymore. Remember when you first accepted Christ and the things that you used to do, you started and tried to continue to do? And all of a sudden you heard that voice within you saying, that's not right. And I was like, oh, what was that? Who was that? Is someone here? I was like, and you tried to do it again. That's not right. Or, you know, you swear or do something and you go, oh, oh, gosh, that's really uncomfortable. Well, why? It never was before. I don't understand. Something's going on in my life. Oh, yeah, it was good. God was changing you, conforming you to his image and his likeness. And uh, so that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at. Larry and Kathy Keith. Are you here? No? Okay. Oh, that's okay. Thanks, Larry. All right, so anyway, here we are. Back to there. Okay, so... In verse 6, he says, hey, let no man transgress, and listen to this, defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is avenger in all these things. I want you to think very hard and, and, and just ingrain that in your mind because it's important in a second. Let no man transgress, do what's wrong before God, and defraud his brother, and I'm going to add sister, in this matter because the Lord is avenger in all of these things. And I've told you this, and I've warned you. If you're having sex outside of marriage, single people, God says, you know what you're doing? You're transgressing. You're defrauding the person that you've got involved with you sexually. If you are having an affair, the Bible says you are defrauding and you are harming the person. And you know what? We've already seen that. We hurt one another. The consequences of sexual sin are emotional damage, physical damage. Um, we've seen all of the problems and the consequences of it spiritual damage and when you entice and lure another person into a behavior that is wrong before God for your own and let me just clarify it for your own selfish purposes you are stealing 
from the other person's life. You're causing them to do what's wrong before God. You are defrauding that person. And you know what God has to say? Hey, he's not fooled by any of it, and he's going to judge those who do that to another person. He holds that in high honor. He's the one that created sex. He's the one that invented it. And it's the institution that he loves and adores, family and marriage, and he's going to protect it. And when you steal from another person that which can never be replaced, God says, man, that is something that I'm going to really take up. I'm going to take up a stand against you on that. And he goes on in verse 8 and says, hey, consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This isn't some guy's idea. This isn't my idea. This isn't somebody else's idea. This isn't some right-winger's idea. This isn't, you know, those to the far right religiously their idea. This is God's idea, and it comes clearly this isn't anybody's agenda other than God's. And all we do is represent and to, to teach the truth about what God has to say. Now, we've got that and we lay it all out. Let me give you four quick things, practical things that you can do and I can do to keep from falling into sexual behavior that's wrong before God. You ready? Number one. For those in the back that can't read it, number one is stay away from those who are immoral. Stay away from those who are immoral. Very simple. Stay away from those who are immoral. You know what's fascinating to me is that those of us who are parents can recognize the danger in our children hanging around people that aren't good for them. How many parents agree with that? Raise your hand. Don't you know, you look at somebody and say, this is bad news. This person isn't going to be good for my daughter or for my son, and she or he better stay away from them because it's going to get them into trouble. And it's interesting. The Bible says the same thing about all of us. Guess what? Hey, Bad company corrupts good morals. Don't be deceived by that. I don't care how young or old you are, who you associate with is going to, in some way, influence the way that we think and behave. Proverbs 1.10. If sinners entice you, do not consent. Entice. There's that word for temptation again. If sinners entice you, don't consent. Proverbs 1.15. Don't walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. Proverbs 5.8, remove your way from her, far away from her. Talking of the adulterous woman who's trying to seduce a young man. Keep your foot, and don't, keep your foot away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. Proverbs 7.6.9 says, At the window of my house I looked through my lattice, and I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house in the twilight and in the evening and in the black and in the dark of night. He said, I looked out and I saw this guy going in this gal's house and I said, what a simpleton, what a moron, what an idiot. He obviously doesn't understand the things of God and the consequences that are to follow. He said, stay away from them. Practical things. If you're single and if you're dating and the person that you're dating encourages you to have sex outside of marriage, as difficult as this may be, they're not the right person for you. Because it's obvious that they don't honor the God that you say that you love. It's obvious they don't honor the word of God that you say that you want to uphold and be obedient to. Jesus said it best. If you love me, you obey my commandments. It doesn't get any simpler than that. If they're encouraging you to do that which is wrong before God, then I don't care how nice a guy he is or how nice she is or what a great family that they are. If they're encouraging you to practice sexual behavior outside of the realms of what God says is right or wrong, there's a deception that goes with that. And God says, they're not the person I have for you. But the person that will honor your commitment to God and honor your commitment to his word to stay celibate before you're married and will honor that and respect you for that. And that really becomes a matter of respect, doesn't it? It's a person who cares about you enough that they don't want you to suffer emotional distress. They don't want you to have any physical consequences. They don't want you to be de defeated spiritually. They want to honor your first commitment, which is love God first before everybody else. They want to honor that and respect that. If you're dating somebody who doesn't honor that, you're deceiving yourself into thinking they're Mr. or Mrs. Right. 
You're nuts. How, how clear can it get? Stay away from them. There's no respect there. Second thing is if there's someone in your life, I don't know, secretary, co-worker, friend that's causing you to desire sex outside of your marriage, you need to eliminate the tension that you're going through and, and eliminate, if not at all possible, uh, don't even spend any time with that person. Stop playing games with this stuff, folks. You know what? There's this mentality among Christians that we like to see how close we can get to doing what's wrong before we actually do it. How close can I get to touching the fire before I get scorched? You know, it's, a, it's just a, it's a human condition. It goes back to the heart again. You know, it's we like to know our boundaries, and then we push our nose right up against them. Like the illustration of the kids in the mailbox, man. Right down to that mailbox, that's where they are. You know, we like boundaries, and God gives them to us. But, man, we like to get real close to them sometimes, don't we? And everybody gets too close to them are the ones that say, man, how'd this happen to me? How it happened to you? I'll tell you how it happened. We'll take a look in a minute. The greatest commandment for each of us is to love God. But the reality of it is, is you know what sometimes we need to do? Just get your butt out of that situation. Greatest example, when I saw that play, Joe, 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 Joseph, you know that one? And, uh, you know, and it's biblical. It's Genesis chapter 39. Here he was in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife wanted a piece of him. And uh, he just said, no, that's not right. I can't sin before God. And you know what he did? He ran butt naked out of, out of her room. She grabbed his robe, tore it right off. He ran naked into the street. I mean, that's how bad he wanted to get away. Now, some would say, well, geez, you know, at least let me get dressed. You know, I don't want to run out in the street. You know, he's like, hey, man, I'd rather run out in the street naked than stay here and risk getting too close to what's about to happen. Not many of us would do that, would we? Stop messing around. This isn't a game. Stay away from people who are immoral. You know why? Because the more people that you're around that are doing things that are wrong before God, the easier it is to start to justify and rationalize why they do what they do, and you begin to accept what they're doing is okay. And it's not. Because you know why you find out, well, they're really nice people. They're not that bad. Well, it's not that they're bad people. We need to accept people and love people, but you can't ever confuse acceptance of people with accepting wrong behavior. So stop messing with that. Number two, stop lusting with the purpose of sexual sin. And this is a question of the heart. Don't lust after her, Proverbs 6.25. Don't lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. Don't entertain thoughts of sexual behavior that's wrong before God in your heart. Jesus said it best. Matthew 5, oh, he said in Mark 7, he said, It's out of the heart that proceeds every evil thing fornication and adultery and, and sexual behavior that's not right before God and lying and murder and lust and all those things. It all starts in your heart. You start to entertain the thought of it. Single people start entertaining. Wonder what it would be like to have sex with this person I'm dating. I really don't. And, and the next thing you know, that's how you express it. A guy that's married or a woman that's married starts entertaining. Wonder what he or she would be like to spend time with physically. And that's how it starts. It all starts in the heart. Wrong thought life always precedes wrong behavior. And Jesus said it best when he said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28. He says, you've heard that it, was, that, it, that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in, a, in his heart. Now the good news is that he's not saying you can't look at other people and appreciate the beauty by which God has created them. You know, good news for every guy that likes to look at women and say, gosh, you know what a beautiful looking woman. Now, the problem that we have is how we go about it and what our thought life is that occupies that. But it's like, hey, women, that's how we're made. We're just made to get attracted visually. That's why God has a lot to say to women about how they dress and how they present themselves because that turns us on. And, and we need to understand that. As men, we can appreciate the beauty of how God has created a woman. 
I mean, think about it for a minute. You know, Adam woke up. What did he say when he saw Eve standing there naked? Naked right in front of him. He wakes up from his sleep. Every guy's dream. A naked lady. When he wakes up, there she is standing there. What did he say? What did he say? Whoa, man. I mean, that's what he said. Woman, whoa, man. That's, how, that's all there is to it. That's what he had to say. That's what he said. It was like, man, you know. And, and so that's the way we are. We need to understand that. You know, and then when you get real sophisticated out now, some of the young guys, I know, I've been there and you do this, you know, so you're with your girlfriend, you're with your wife, and you see a guy walk by and you go, you know, you do that. Not a good thing to do, see? (laughs) Not a good thing to do. Now, as you get older and you get more sophisticated and refined in how you do these things, you say things like this to your wife or your girlfriend. Do you like her hairdo? (laughs) That is a nice dress. Yeah, you say stuff like that. Well, now, every time I say something like that, now my wife's going to know what I really mean. But, so, you know, you've got to be careful about stuff like that. But stop lusting with, with the purpose of sexual sin. The guidelines Jesus gave were simple. Looks was present tense. It wasn't don't look at women. It was looks, present tense, at a woman, a specific woman, for the purpose of lusting or having sex with her. So the warning is very simple. It's not a, a, a commandment not to look at women anymore. It's a commandment to men not to look at a certain woman in the present tense continually for the purpose of having sex with her. It's a particular woman, and every guy knows what I'm talking about. Because there's some woman that you start to entertain thoughts about, and it's a specific woman, whether it's at the office or somebody you work with or some friend or whatever, and you start thinking about that, God says, stop doing that because you've already committed adultery in your heart and now all you're lacking is the opportunity to do it actually in the physical. And he says, don't even entertain those thoughts. Take every thought into captivity is what the Bible warns us because our thought life always precedes our actions. Number three, seek satisfaction from your spouse. If you are married, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 says, rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. Very simple. If you're married, seek sexual satisfaction with your spouse. Period. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. You know what it has to do with? It was a feeling of, it it was a word that was used in Hebrew of celebrating after a victory. And isn't that appropriate for most guys? That's the way we date. You know, it's a conquest. We get them to say, I do. They marry us. Hey, now it's time to celebrate the victory. Right. Well, that's good. Hey, man, I'll tell you what. When, it's like, when I saw my wife, I said, this is the woman I want to marry. And when she said yes and we got married, it was like, whoa, what a victory. Well, it, her defeat, but it was, it, it turned out, it was a victory for me, right? And, and it was, and it was a celebration. And that's what God's saying, rejoice and celebrate with your wife. You know what? I mean, Larry talks about celebrating and joy, and the book of Philippians talks about it. And we got too many people that are out there that are married. It's like, well, got to be, I'm married. Sure, glad there ain't no giving and taking of marriage in heaven. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got to be married. Can't be divorced. Murder, suicide's not a bad idea, but, you know, again. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you got this attitude about your marriage. Celebrate it. Have a blast. Enjoy it. Look at the woman that you married and remember why you rem- married her and get excited about her again. Take her out on dates. Do stuff that you haven't done since you dated. Those of you who've been married 30 and 40 years, wake up, guys. I mean, celebrate your marriage. Do some stuff. Be spontaneous. Call her from the office and say, hey, babe, I'm thinking about you. She'd die. She'd sneak and have a heart attack. She'd be like, who is this? Who is this? Really? 
I mean, she'd have, she wouldn't know what to do. I mean, surprise her. Be spontaneous. The younger guys, you got kids and stuff, get a babysitter. Take her out. Have a good time. Man, wouldn't that be great, ladies? All you ladies, amen hallelujahs, please. Amen. Thank you very much. You can do that. It's okay. You're married. You can do that. You know, if you want to just go have a great time, what I did was I told you one time I met my wife for lunch at Burger King, you know, but, you know, but it doesn't matter where. It's the thought that counts. So... But we met at Burger King, and she got, I pulled up, she pulled up, she got out of the car, I walked over to her, I pinned her up against the car, I lip-locked her, man, right in the middle of the parking lot, laid her down over the car. All these people walking by going, look, they got wedding rings on, that's so disgusting. <laughs> you know, isn't that true? It's like, man, you know, do it, it's okay. You know, it's okay, you're married. That's good. You know, if anything good comes out of marriage, it's that you can have sex anytime that you want, as long as you convince the other person that it's okay, and that they can join in. You know what I mean? But it's okay. Now, for those of you who aren't married, I don't have much good news for you. <laughs> I really don't. I'm sorry. It's like, I don't know what to tell you. This is, I've just got to stick to the text here. Hey, you can't do anything, you know? That's the way it is. First Corinthians 7, read it for yourself. You know, if you've got sexual desires and you can't control them and, and you're going at it and you want to be right before God, then just get married. Hey, be willing to pay for it. Make the commitment. You know, I, no, I don't mean pay for it. Man. Oh. No. Although every guy that's married knows you do, some way or another. It's just more sophisticated. It has to do with shopping and stuff. I don't know. I mean, it's all kind of stuff. But, hey, you're not, you're not married. You can't do it. You got it? You can't. That's all there is to it. You want to have sex, you're single, you're dating, you're committed, love each other, blah, 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 then hey, then get married. Show that you're committed to do what's right before God. That's as simple as it gets. A little confining, huh? But that's God's, that's His program. Interesting, isn't it? You're married, celebrate it. You're single, wait. You know why? Because, man, you're going to have a blast by the time you get there if you just wait. The joy of discovery, discovery and celebration that goes along with people that wait before they're married. What a wonderful thing. No baggage, no emotional scars, no distress, no worrying about, hey, you know, I think you've got to get an AIDS test. You know, let's get this done just in case, blah, blah, blah. Man, no heartbreak. No stories like that. No tragedies. What a wonderful thing it is to remain celibate until you're married and then be able to celebrate sex as God intended. What a great thing it is. Last thing, number four. Submit to the Word of God. Galatians 5.16 simply says, Walk in the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the lusts or the desires of the flesh. Psalm 119, the psalmist asked this question, God, how can a young man make his life pure before God? How can I do what's right before God? And you know what God says? Very simple. Take heed to the Word of God. Submit to the Word of God. In Matthew 26.41 it says, Watch and pray. Isn't that really what we need to do? Watch for the danger signs, the things we've already talked about, and pray. You're single and you're frustrated, pray. Continually submit to the Word of God. Continually get into the Word of God. I challenge you to memorize Scripture that has to do with this particular area of life. Memorize it. Study the passages. Study the Scripture. David said, hey, you know what? My, thy Word I've hidden in my heart. You know why, God? So that I don't sin against you. 
when we are familiar with the Word of God, we make it a part of our life. It's ingrained in our, our belief system. When we understand the characteristics of seduction, the consequences of sexual behavior, when we understand what God has to say, a challenge to be sanctified and different from the world, when that is ingrained in us as the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to empower us, to give us self-control, to live a life that's pleasing to God. That's the only way that it takes place. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Because for those who are believers, you know this is true. The Spirit is willing. I want to do what's right. Man, but my flesh is weak. Absolutely helpless, hopeless beyond belief. The only way is that we need to be empowered by the Spirit of God. Galatians 5 said the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, goodness. Against all these things, you know what the one most wonderful thing is? Self-control. God gives us the power as believers to live lives that are pleasing to Him if we pave the way for the Spirit of God to be empowered through us by being obedient to the Word of God. I want to close with a true story. I want you to understand that uh, growing up in Pittsburgh, there was a little town north of the city of Pittsburgh, and they had built a fire station. And it was all oh, state-of-the-art. It was a wonderful thing. They built it. It was a nice brick, quaint little city. Uh, actually, it was a borough or a township. And they had built this fire station. And uh, it was brand new, spent a couple million dollars on it. And it was, a, it was just a beautiful building. Everyone talked about it. Everyone came to see it. It was just, a, you know, kind of the central point of the town. And over a period of time, they noticed that the walls began to crack. The foundation began to, to crack. The bricks started to chip away on the outside. And it was obvious that there was a major problem. And so they brought in a, a team of engineers, and they did all kind of studies. And what they found was that they had built this fire station over an old abandoned mining shaft. And uh, so there was a shaft underneath it, and when the water was out of the shaft and it was no longer filled with water and the, and the pressure, I guess, from the water didn't maintain the foundation, it began to cave in. And uh, they discovered a very expensive discovery, and that is that the things that aren't obvious to everybody else are the things that cause the most devastation in life. And you know what? The sexual behavior that we incorporate or embrace isn't sometimes obvious to the person that's sitting next to us or the person on the outside that sees what's going on. But if there is any behavior in your life that's not right according to what God has outlined in the Bible, it's a slow erosion that takes place in the foundation of your life. And there's nothing more tragic than the collapse from within. And that's exactly what God will do to each of us who are disobedient to his word. Where we can blow smoke at one another and put on an image and a facade, God says, hey, all things are open and laid bare to him to whom we have to do. The ways of man are seen by the eyes of God, and he watches everything that we do, everything that we say. And we can play games with one another until now, until Jesus comes back, or until we go to be with him. But the reality of it is, you need to stop doing what you're doing. You need to confess and agree with God that what you're doing is wrong, and you need to repent from it. For those of you who do not know Christ as Savior, you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and ask him into your life. Then everything that we talked about will make sense. Because all God's people know can attest to what I talked about today, that everything that I said from the Word of God, the Spirit of God in your life was saying, Amen, that's exactly right. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this opportunity to look at a subject that needs to be discussed openly, frankly, and with truth. God, we need to recognize that we are people who are bent on self-destruction, that we're a society that's hell-bent on destroying not only ourselves, but the people around us. And we need to turn back to your word for truth. God, you tell us to sanctify, that you sanctified us as believers in your truth and that your word is truth. God, I just pray for those who have never come to a point where they've given their hearts to Jesus Christ, that they would do so today. They'd stop living in the bondage and the fear and the and the lack of peace in their life in whatever area they struggle. 
and that they can recognize that you are a God who forgives, you're a God who loves, and that you're a God who says that, hey, once a person comes to know Jesus, that all things pass away and everything becomes new. God, I also pray for those of us who have made that decision, that we would demonstrate the truth of that conviction in our life by the way that we live, the way that we talk, and the way that uh, we act when no one else is around. God, help us to be people who are convicted and committed to your word without an audience, without the public, but just between ourselves as individuals and you as the God who made us. And we just thank you that we can celebrate sex within marriage, that it's a wonderful institution, that there's much joy that comes with it, that you protect it, that you sanctify it, that you bless it. God, we thank you for that gift, and it's a wonderful gift. May we not distort it or abuse it for our own pleasures and in ways that aren't pleasing to you. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.